Hi, it's Arjun with a video this week that looks to revisit the question of what is the role for oil and gas companies in energy transition? It actually harkens back or is inspired by, I think it was my second ever super spiked post and it was titled, Stop Trying to Get Blockbuster Video, i.e. Big Oil, to Help Accelerate Energy Transition. And the basic premise, as the title implies, is the idea that companies that were leaders in the legacy technology, we're going to call that oil and gas today, uh, could they, would you want them to be? Is there any chance they could be leaders in whatever the future technologies? And I'm clearly expressing skepticism. And I, I think investors, by and large, accept that basic premise for the most part. The questions really come from policymakers, from some companies as well, as to should companies be spending more on low carbon? Should they be paying as much in dividends? All these kind of questions I want to get into in today's video. So I've got a handful of slides as I usually do. I think that the heart of the issue is this question of, are oil and gas companies spending too much on oil and gas capex, not enough on low carbon capex, and are they paying too much in dividends and stock buybacks? And I think if I was to paraphrase uh, some of the policy folk out there, some of those that are most passionate about climate, should a lot or at least some of the dividends and should some of the oil and gas capex instead go into low carbon capex. And you know, I, I, I'll address this in a few different ways. I, I think first is a little bit of a reminder of why companies spend on capex in the first place. Uh, and that is to be in a position to generate profits over the long run. This is the only reason that companies actually exist in the first place. It is to generate profits for investors. There's a lot that goes into it. Some of what goes into it falls under those ESG types of buckets. Do you have good governance? Uh, does your management team and board reflect a variety of different viewpoints to help decision-making? Uh, do you care about the safety and health of your assets and your employees such that the assets and the employees are in a position to help generate profits? It all is part of the mosaic. But the basic premise of any company, make no mistake, and thank goodness this is the case, is to generate profits for its investors. why they spend capital. And so as an investor, you're typically going to have the most confident that a company that's demonstrated expertise in a particular area, let's take the oil companies as an example. If you're a Permian Basin, pure play, if you're an oil sands company, if you're a deep water explorer, and if you've demonstrated success, investors will often believe that that is your area of expertise. Now, Perhaps you can add skill sets. Perhaps you can look at diversification. I'll get to that in a second. But by and large, people can have the most confidence that you should stick to what you know best. The basic idea, again, though, isn't to satisfy necessarily some broad social goal. It is for companies to be profitable. Now, this question of diversification, what's the role of it? I think I've shown in a lot of my work that for companies that are able to outperform the S&P 500, which I would call one of the core goals of a publicly traded company, over five, but especially 10 and 20 years, they're probably going to be diversified. If you're a single basin player, I'm going to just keep sticking with oil and gas terminology here. Uh, oftentimes, there's a shelf life to how much tier one inventory, how much best in class inventory you have. There's inevitably and invariably a need that if you don't sell yourselves uh, in an M&A deal to, to you know, capitalize on what you created in your specific basin, you're going to ultimately need to or want to diversify in some manner, either joining up with someone else or acquiring or adding skill set to yourself. So there is an inherent, I would say, goal even to ultimately diversify 
if you want to be a long-term outperformer measured over multi-decadal type timeframes, which is entirely possible. We saw it historically with legacy Exxon and legacy Royal Dutch Shell over a century, significant outperformance. They obviously were never single basin players or single asset type companies. I think the question still arises as to whether the expertise can be gained uh, in the low carbon business. And if even you'd want that expertise, what is the pathway for scale up? What is the pathway for profitability without massive subsidies? And those are all still big questions that I think investors are still skeptical of. As far as dividends and stock buybacks goes, this is an outcome of the investment process. So any company is going to invest in all of their best-in-class, low-cost projects that they can reasonably do in a given year. So you might have a whole bunch of locations. Again, I'm sticking with oil and gas companies here that are particularly low cost, but you might not want to drill them all in the first year because the timing and the pace, uh, the people that you have, the rigs and other equipment you can get, you, you wouldn't want to drill everything at one time. So you spread it out over a number of years. You invest in the best, uh, your best in class assets that will generate profits at presumably a, a low price, let alone if you have an high price. All the excess cash should go back to investors. And that is dividends and stock buybacks, or it should go to paying down debt. The idea that you're paying out dividends in lieu of spending on your best projects, I don't believe exists. So when you think about asking companies to redirect dividends and stock buybacks into spending in another area, it still, get back, still gets back to the basic question. What do they know about that area? Is there a pathway to profitability and superior profitability? You know, And so the idea that companies have paid X billions of dollars of dividends, and if all of that had gone into solar or wind or, or hydrogen or heat pumps or whatever new technology you want to make it, that somehow that that is a good outcome. I'm going to significantly question that. CapEx, new investments, and dividends are, are really three totally different things. And the dividends and stock buybacks are going to be an outcome of your excess cash flows relative to pursuing only your best-in-class investments. I think the last thing that we have seen over, the, especially the last couple of years, is a lot of debt paid on and balance sheet improvement. And I, I do sense there's actually less pushback from the policy crowd on this point. But remember, in a world where we have the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is specifically trying to starve oil and gas companies, especially in Europe, in Canada, and the United States, of needed financing and capital markets access, it is critical that companies retain a very strong balance sheet. Now. If we're being realistic about it, whatever you know, balance sheet improvement or cash buildups happened, I doubt much of that would have gone into meaningful low carbon capex if that's what is desired. But I think the pressures being put on this sector from these outside forces uh, that, as you know, I have significant questions and concerns about, uh, it is a reason why companies should strive for uh, probably an even stronger balance sheet type situation than what we might have thought even just a few years ago. So let's talk about legacy versus new technology companies. And I think there's this fundamental question that exists is, can leaders of yesterday's technology be at the forefront of tomorrow's technologies? And what examples are there of that? And so my, my favorite one, and this goes back to the original post, is Blockbuster Video versus Netflix. Blockbuster Video, for those of you that are young, there used to be a day when you'd get these things called VCR tapes, you'd stick them into a machine, but you had to go to a store uh, to to rent or buy the video and then come home and stick it in your cassette player. There was no such thing as streaming. 
And that was the idea that Netflix came up with. Uh, and Reed Hastings in his book, it's an excellent, I don't know if it's a biography or an autobiography, but in, in the book that was published a few years ago, talks about how Blockbuster Video had made an offer to buy Netflix. And thank goodness they didn't sell. But would we have streaming today if Blockbuster had bought Netflix? Uh, and, and so, you know, did the world need Blockbuster Video to develop streaming? Obviously, it didn't. Does anyone care that Blockbuster Video barely exists today? No. And so you can say this is a narrow example. It's not a societal issue like climate and so forth. But I think it does speak to the idea that what once looked like a behemoth, at least in video rentals, Blockbuster has been crushed uh, out of existence by a tech, what was then a technology upstart and is now a leading company in Netflix. Another example, Tesla versus the auto original auto manufacturers, the, the legacy auto companies. Legacy auto companies used to make what were basically compliance electric vehicles that didn't sell and didn't result in EVs ramping. Tesla had a different strategy. Let's make a car people actually want to drive. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine making a project, a product that people actually want to buy. So they had a very different approach. Uh, I think their success speaks for themselves. This isn't about Tesla stock price or valuation. Some people think it's a bubble stock. Others don't. I'm not here to debate that. There's no question Tesla has taken a meaningful share of the luxury vehicle market. I myself, for full disclosure, have been a very happy Tesla driver. It's 2023. So I've had a Tesla for eight years now, five years, the Model S, three years now, the Model 3. I'm personally never going to go back to driving uh, an ICE vehicle as my primary ride. I love uh, the electric vehicle. And I'm very fortunate to have the situation that results in that. But when we look at the traditional auto manufacturers, they're now trying to play catch up. And I think there's a big question of how successful they will be. And make no mistake, why are they doing this? Tesla's got a massive valuation premium. And without question, that is irresistible to both investors and traditional auto companies. And we'll see how this plays out. But again, an example to me of, it took a new company investing in new technology, doing it in a different way to have kind of massive success. I, I think the third example that I know everyone's going to be familiar with is Amazon versus traditional bricks and mortar retailers. And there are some, some good advertisements from Amazon first broke on the scene as an online book re retailer of people kind of mocking Hey, how many books does anyone really want to buy online? And look at where Amazon is today as a trillion dollar company. But I cite this example because one pushback I have received that I think is reasonable is this idea of adaptation. And so it used to be a complete joke, the online presence of the traditional retailers versus especially Amazon. And while Amazon has grown and expanded into many different things, including cloud infrastructure, including having essentially a huge delivery network and a whole bunch of different things, we have seen progress in a lot of the legacy retailers to have more seamless interaction between their online presence and their bricks and mortar retail stores. That was a bumpy road. Uh, it used to be you could either buy something online or, or buy it in the store. And then I think a lot of these companies have come a long way. And maybe there is an angle there for traditional energy that where are their complementary technologies? Where are their complementary skill sets? And how do you take the best of some of the newer stuff? I don't think it's a perfect analogy, but I but I do appreciate my examples of, you know, you didn't need Blockbuster to have Netflix created. Um, Tesla has crushed the traditional auto OEMs. I, I think this kind of traditional retailing versus now the mixture of online and, and traditional retailing, perhaps there's something in there, some lesson for traditional energy companies.
So let's talk about some of the new energy uh, opportunities. And I think when you look at uh, when you look at the universe of companies uh, in the traditional space, there are some logical extensions. So if you're a downstream company, I get why so many of them are producing pursuing renewable diesel, especially if it's an older plant that might have been not so cost competitive or is going to require a lot of upgrades. Clearly, there's a low carbon fuels tax credit that enables all those economics in the first place. Make no mistake about that. But it is an example to me of a logical extension. I think there are a handful of companies pursuing carbon capture. Uh, it, uh, you know, Exxon and Oxy are two of the more prominent ones. I think given the legacy of what these companies have done uh, in their traditional oil and gas businesses, I can appreciate why they are pursuing those opportunities. This video is not about trying to assess whether they're going to be successful or not successful or what the economics are. But it is within their area of expertise, I would say. And so I respect the fact that those are logical business extensions for those companies. Um, I think the uh, uh, other big question to ask is, there is going to be a lot of growth in a lot of different areas. I, I, I mean, even for someone like myself, who believes crude oil, natural gas, and for that matter, even coal demand is going to grow for the foreseeable future, there's no doubt all these new areas are going to grow very quickly as well. I think EV sales are going to grow a lot. I don't think they're on track to be 100% of sales by 2035 or whatever the hockey stick forecasts imply. But I do think on an absolute basis, they will grow a lot. Heat pumps will grow, solar will grow, wind will grow, a whole bunch of different things are going to grow. The question is, the timing for things like hydrogen and other things, and even some of those other areas to scale up, and the kind of profits you can generate, I think, are still very uncertain in a lot of these newer areas. And so that is a big risk in engaging with a lot of new energy areas. Um, and I think I think it a little bit boils down to how much confidence do you have in crude oil and natural gas demand being likely to grow for the foreseeable future versus potentially being either complemented by new technologies, which is what I think will be the case, versus being replaced, of which I'm very skeptical of. If you're more in the replacement category, perhaps you give some of these things more of a chance. I'm, it's not my view, and I think the math on replacement is is you know pretty daunting. What I do find intriguing, and I suspect this will get some pushback from investors, is the idea of new energies as kind of a component of your exploration program. So if we think something could be sizable, you classically see this in oil exploration. I'm going to go invest in some deep water province because I think there could be a whole bunch of oil there. And maybe there is or maybe there isn't if you have dry holes. In many respects, I'd call new energies as kind of the new form of exploration. I, I, I think we do need traditional exploration in oil and gas basins. But again, that's probably for another video. But for companies saying some handful of percents of our CapEx program is going to either go directly into these areas or get invested through some sort of venture capital fund or opportunity, that to me does have some logic to it. I do think there's a chance you could have a lot of growth in a bunch of areas. So why as a company, wouldn't you want to at least figure out some way to get exposure, perhaps not through direct involvement, again, perhaps it's through a fund structure or venture capital uh, division that you have. And again, I'm mostly talking about larger companies here. New energies as a component of exploration does have some logic to me. So we still have the question of, okay, Arjun, if you're skeptical that oil and gas companies either can or should be leaders or can or should be investing meaningful quantities of CapEx into low carbon, if you're skeptical of that, what is their responsibility when it comes to the environment uh, and climate? And I'd say, first and foremost, health, safety, and the environment. Traditional focus by just about all oil companies is the paramount, uh, should be the paramount 
environmental, and for that matter, ESG folks for them. Do you run your operation safely? Um, do you keep your people safe? Do the plants continue to run, hopefully without issue, or at least with as minimal of an issue as you can have? It, it is the that to me is uh, both a moral and an environmental and health responsibility that all oil companies have, and frankly, I believe most of them try their best and have sincere practices and policies to to pursue. And I, I still say that is the number one objective. I, I do think from a societal standpoint and from perhaps an increasingly regulatory standpoint, all companies in all sectors are going to have to deal with their scope one emissions. And I think on this particular metric, there are actually some you know encouraging progress being made. I think if you really look through kind of the scope one reduction plans, especially the, I'll call it the intermediate term targets of 2030 or 2035, I think there's some pretty credible reduction plans going on. Beyond that, you know, some stuff is going to, you know, we're not, I think most companies, very few companies are totally sure if I can get to 100% elimination of scope one, but there's going to be a decent amount of progress, 50, 60% type reductions, uh, you know, within the next decade or so. I have no issue with holding companies accountable for the scope one emissions that they directly uh, produce. I think for oil and gas companies, they have a unique responsibility to contribute to net, uh, I think you'd call it near zero methane flaring leaking vents. I've talked about this elsewhere. Perhaps there is a role there to help other countries that are frankly more problematic. I'm thinking of some of the former Soviet Union republics, the other parts of the world, perhaps even the Middle East. Perhaps there's a role for companies to be helpful in sharing technologies and best practices. We've come a long way. Uh, I think the, you know, where we are right now is we still need to iron out some of the regulatory and legal issues around this topic. There is, um, there is a, a lack of trust between companies and regulators and uh, all these kind of things that are, you know, kind of serious issues that we're going to need to figure out. But this basic topic of near zero methane leaks and flaring, uh, that is something that I think uh, is their responsibility. And you know, lastly, I just say, especially in the U.S. and perhaps Canada. You know how can existing oil and gas companies contribute to uh, solving these issues with orphan wells? Where I think there's not legal liability anymore. It probably is legally liability uh, resides with the taxpayer if the offending company is long since bankrupt or no longer in existence. But this, to me, strikes me as kind of an industry issue that we should have. You know, try and help figure out what are the solutions here. If I could pick one thing that oil and gas companies can do to help climate and the environment, it is to produce all the oil and gas that the world continues to need to support economic growth and improve the living standards for citizens around the world. And now I'm talking specifically about especially US as well as Canadian, hopefully European oil and gas companies, they are critical to um, energy security, reliability, and ensuring that we are not overly dependent on countries outside of the US, Canada, and Europe. Some of those countries are fine. Some of those countries are not so fine. Why would anyone want to be dependent on countries that don't necessarily share all of our values, that are showing they want to go it alone? I don't blame them for wanting to go it alone, but I think there's a lot of good reasons to continue to support US, Canadian, and European oil and gas companies to help the world meet it, meet the meet its second energy needs. And without them, I think it's going to be a lot more problematic. So I'd like to end this video on a personal note. Well, we're getting back into the heart of golf season. This past weekend, Memorial Day was our club's major member member tournament. It's five rounds of nine. And 
my partner and I, uh, who have, it's a former fellow Goldman retiree, and we kind of, a lot of the weekday golf comes with him. Um, we are classically in that sort of median handicap flight. So I'm usually a nine or 10 for this tournament, at least the last couple of years. Uh, my partner, Tom's been anywhere from 12 to 14. You add it up and, and we're right there in that median flight. And it's particularly interesting are how people think about their handicaps. This to me should be a mathematical calculation in the same way uh, return on capital is a mathematical calculation and that there's a truth to full cycle profitability relative to individual well economics. I think things like the levelized cost of energy, there's a lot of manipulation of these stats versus uh, trying to reflect all the attributes that goes into having uh, a healthy power grid as an example. And this same thing we see in people's golf handicap index. So when you're a mid-handicapper, I find people tend to fall uh, into kind of two buckets in terms of maybe not being quite as correct in their gin calculation. You either get people who are kind of 13 to 15 handicaps who take, um, when they're playing just a normal round, a double bogey irrespective of what they shot. Now, there's a such a thing as a max score you can take on an individual hole. It's actually net double bogey, not double bogey. And if you're like a 15 handicap, what that means is the worst score you can have on a particular hole is probably three over par. And what happens is their handicaps are somewhat understated, and they're therefore not getting as many strokes as they should in these handicap tournaments. At the other end, you get people with these seven, eight handicaps who they're happy to be single digit, and they do everything in their power to retain a single digit handicap, which means they don't input all their scores. Uh, we'll call it a vanity handicap. In their case, they're giving away too many strokes. And when you play in the median flight, and we've either been 10 of 20 or 11 of 20 the last three years, you get a lot of people who are kind of either that 13, 14, that really should be 16, 17, or the people that are frankly, uh, you know, seven, eight, or nine, that probably are really nine, 10, or 11. Um, you know, both Tom and I know neither of us are professional athletes. I, I like to think I do an okay job analyzing the oil sector. Uh, I love golf as a hobby, but the idea that you should try and manipulate your handicap for uh, vanity purposes or otherwise, I, I don't. I don't get that. the The numbers are the numbers. Uh, I'm going to have some good rounds and I'm going to have some bad rounds. My handicap this year has gone from seven six to I think I'm at a soft cap of ten seven. I need to get out and practice a little bit. But you see it in these handicap tournaments, and I will say, and I think we're quite proud of this. We have won our flight the last two years. We tend to put out. We tend to track our scores accurately. I don't think my handicap should be higher or lower. It should be the number that it is. And much like an analysis of corporate level returns on capital versus project economics, I don't know. I really don't know why it's so hard to not just look at the numbers. Um, anyway, that's it. And we'll see you next week.